there are times when, sure, it, it, it can be scary to want to speak up and it can be, you can fear the consequence of, you know, losing a friendship or, you know, pissing off a relative or, you know, something that simple. But the fact that, that we get to have that choice is privilege in and of itself. This is the Mindfully White Anti-Racist Affinity Group Podcast. I'm Christine Eaton. On this show, you'll hear white people talking frankly about whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, and what they're trying to do about it. But first, let's go over a few important points. You may be wondering, what is an affinity group? It's a group of people linked by a common interest or purpose. So in this case, if you identify as white and are working towards racial justice, or are just curious and want to learn more, this podcast might be for you. The phrase mindfully white means that being present with open-mindedness, curiosity, non-judgment, and compassion were used to create a supportive space within which our guests were invited to share their stories. Throughout the episode, you'll be prompted to use mindfulness as a way to practice working with your own thoughts, feelings, and emotions with regard to this topic. As you may know, mindfulness practice has deep roots in Buddhist teachings, which have been preserved for the last 2,600 years. As your host and a student of Buddhism, I pay respect to the Asian ancestors from whom these practices come, and specifically the Buddha's foundational teaching of the Four Noble Truths. These inspired the framework for this podcast. In that teaching, the Buddha prescribed a way to end suffering. Here, we are looking at how we can individually contribute to ending racism, a form of suffering, by seeing it more clearly in ourselves and everyday life, understanding its causes, and taking action. You will often hear that it's an issue for white people to center themselves and their voices when talking about race. This is true and needs to be carefully examined within the context in which it happens. Here we need to hold two things as realities at the same time, that centering white voices is often problematic when talking about race, and that it is also necessary so that white people can support and learn with each other in community. Listening to and engaging with these conversations are by no means a replacement for taking the time to do the same with Black, Indigenous, and people of color. This is in addition to that work. Please refer to the show notes for some helpful resources. Before we begin, I'd like to offer some suggestions on how to listen to this conversation. It's important to remember that our guests are not experts on racism, white supremacy, or privilege. Neither am I. We are offering our dialogue primarily as an opportunity for you, the listener, to engage with curiosity. Those being interviewed are inviting you into their perspective and direct experience. There will no doubt be times that you disagree with what's being said, feel it could be said a different way, or even find yourself becoming agitated. You're also likely to find ways that you relate, learn, and want to know more. As you listen, I encourage you to be aware of what you're feeling and thinking with a sense of openness and compassion for yourself and others. Even notice where in your body you feel it. This is an exercise in mindfulness. And I believe that if we can take this same approach with us into conversations we have in person, on social media, or anywhere really, we may be able to move along this path further together. Let's get started. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Tracy, a 39-year-old woman from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, 
specifically the traditional indigenous territory of Wampanoag. Tracy is a doctoral student in a higher education program, which has fueled her interest, introspection, and action in anti-racist work. We're happy to have her join us. To get going here, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, yeah. Uh, In context of what we're talking about in this discussion, my initial reaction is to say, well, I'm a white cis woman. Uh, I'm gay, married to another woman. Um, And I think that's how I describe slash introduce myself in a professional setting too. Um, But, you know, when I think about who I am, you know, I'm, I'm more than those social identities. To me, being an auntie is a huge identity that I hold. You know, I call myself super auntie too, and I don't take that title lightly. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think family is super important to me. So I come from, I would say, a lower middle class French Canadian family. I grew up on the North Shore of Boston. I am a first generation college student. Um, So that comes with some learning experiences and challenges. I professionally came up through higher ed, working in fitness and recreation and college athletics, then transitioning over to student affairs. Um, And I've worked mostly in community college settings, so working with a a diverse student population. And uh, another identity or another who I am is a doctoral student. So I am a fourth year doc student at UMass Boston uh, in the higher education program, which has really ignited this anti-racism, critical whiteness work that the introspective and the outer work that I hope to do personally and in the professional realm. Well, I'm very curious about super auntie two identity. I think that's great. Um, when you think of your identity as a white cisgender female, what, what comes up for you when you think about what whiteness is? I think uh, for me, I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a social phenomenon of privilege, really. Um, I think of it as something that I, I didn't earn. I didn't buy into. I didn't adopt. Um, it just came with me. I think, you know, whiteness as a construct gives me uh, privileges and I don't know what's a stronger word than privileges. You know, I mean, that's that's really where it lies. It's like safety, power, and I think whiteness is is dangerous if it's not examined critically, if it's not held with care. Um and if it's not disrupted. Can you recall ways that where you have witnessed yourself in a position of power because of your whiteness? Yeah, uh, I was working at an urban community college that was a minority serving institution. And I had a student who would come by my office every day asking if I had a work study job for him. And I didn't. And I just kept having to say, no, I'm sorry, we're not hiring. I don't have a budget. Like, there's no job. And um, there was one day where um, he and his friends were trailing behind him and followed me into the gym. And, like, again, still joking, like, hey, you gonna, when are you going to hire me? And I said to him, um, joking back, because we had a good relationship, I thought. I said, um, 
geez, you're like my shadow. Every time I turn around, there you are. No, I still don't have a job, right? Joking around. So for a week or two after that, I didn't see this student. He stopped coming by. And when I finally caught up with some of his friends, I said, hey, you know, where is so-and-so? You know, I, I haven't seen him in a while, and he's always at my office. And um, they told me that my joke um, was interpreted as a racist, with racist connotation. So that when I made reference to shadow, that it was in reference to the color of his skin. And I'll never forget that because like I, 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 of course, like then it's the white guilt, the white fragility, right? Like I can't believe, you know, like I'm internalizing, which is so bogus. Like it was not about me. Um, but I couldn't wait to see him to, to clear the air to say, I'm so sorry, that is not what I meant. But, you know, when I said, in, in retrospect, when I said to him, geez, you're like my shadow, no joke, his four or five friends that were with him, in tears laughing on the gym floor, because that's how they heard my joke. And they just thought it was hilarious, and, and then he didn't show his face after that. So it's like, you know, you just don't, you just don't know how, what words can do. Gosh, if I had a nickel for every time I did something like that, right? Oof. But even that bit of information you shared, every white person is going to be in a similar situation where it's really important we watch what we say, you know, even if we think our intention is well-meaning. And there's really nothing you can do about it. I mean, there's really no way to make that right. I mean, you can apologize for sure. But in terms of one's own guilt and fragility and like, there has to be a way to move through it. Yes, I feel guilty. Yes, I feel defensive. I feel like that actually it's important to feel those feelings of guilt and maybe shame and fragility, but to really directly deal with them so that you can actually move forward and be instrumental in change. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a movement forward to get past those feelings of guilt and shame. Because I don't think you can, you have to be able to do the, the critical work of yourself to understand where guilt and shame come from, but then you move, you have to move forward. If you're stuck in the guilt and the shame, you're never going to move forward. So I agree with you that it's important to sit with that and you know, unpack it and figure out, you know, where it stems from. But if you don't take the next step to say, well, I'm not going to let myself feel guilty anymore. I'm not going to feel that shame anymore because I'm going to do better. Yeah. When there's a lot of fear in general that one is not managing about many things. When it comes to this particular topic, it's like if one hasn't figured out how to directly deal with shame or guilt or fear in any fa facet of their life, that when this one shows up, there's just no chance. It's like shut down, right? Like it's not going to happen. And so, you know, and I think that's a large part of why these conversations we're having and why I so appreciate you, Tracy, being here and sharing all this, because it's, I like to think it's therapeutic to just be honest about this is how it is. This work is really hard. And together, talking about it out loud, we see things in each other that we are like, oh, yeah, that happened to me, too. And oh, that's I'm not alone in this. So um, 
Thank you. What are some things that you do now? Like what's alive for you right now in this work? It's the relationships for me. It, it, it's all about the relationships. You know, um, one of the institutions, one of the community colleges that I worked at just formed an inclusion, diversity, equity, and access committee. And it's a predominantly white institution. So as you could probably imagine, the folks sitting around the table were mostly white people with a couple of folks on staff who I think just over and over again were tokenized and put around the table because they represented a non-white race or, you know, a non-heterosexual identity. And so you have this committee of, of white people you know, it, it included faculty and staff who had worked at the institution for a long time. So they felt like they had a historical organizational knowledge and they knew our students. They knew what our students needed. And the power, the in some ways ignorance that I think we, I felt around that table of who are we to act like we know what it's like to be a black and brown student on this campus. Who are we to know what the experience when they walk down the hallway and they're the only non-white student, the only non-white student in their classroom. So I I pushed back a lot on this group to say, I'm not just going to throw something against a wall and see if it sticks. Like we need to actually talk to our students and see what it's like to, to walk a day in their shoes. I think we live we we live in such a numbers and data driven society right but justice and equity work is rarely efficient you know trying to create a space and an environment and a culture on a college campus that is affirming and welcoming for students of color um to do that is not going to be what student affairs folks would define as efficient you know, student affairs processes, it's going to take more time. It's going to take time getting to know people, getting to hear the stories, getting to learn the lived experiences. And I think that's what keeps me going. Yeah, I mean, how many roundtables of people are even meeting right now having these same discussions? It's so common to have these these roundtables using deficit language, right? Like, so we, you know, when you hear words like disadvantaged or at risk putting the the problem, putting the the less than on the people instead of the systems and the culture and the structures that actually continue to exclude the same people. In higher ed, it's so rare to consider the institution as the problem. You know, it's all about trying to find ways to, quote unquote, fix our students so that they're more college ready, so they're more prepared. And, you know, more prepared for what? To assimilate to this very white Eurocentric, fill it in, patriarchal, you know, heteronormative system structure that was built on the backs of enslaved people. Um, So this is why there are those of us in the field, in, you know, education broadly, that have this burn it all down mentality, right? Because how can you, how can I be satisfied with incremental change to a system the system being, you know, higher education, it was founded to exclude. It was founded to uplift white men. You look at things like the SAT. The SAT was made to try and uphold the belief 
that non-white people were less intelligent. And we still use the SAT as a measure of how college-ready students are. You know, how do you, how do you uproot all of that? So even if you try and make changes, so many of the changes, in my opinion, are within the current existing structures when we can't get out of our own way to see that that structure in and of itself is the problem. So what does it feel like to be up against that system? It feels exhausting, but it feels so necessary. And, you know, it's, it's the... The old adage, right? If if not me, then who? You know, if not now, then when? There are times when, sure, it, it, it can be scary to want to speak up and it can be, you can fear the consequence of, you know, losing a friendship or, you know, pissing off a relative or, you know, something that simple. But the fact that, that we get to have that choice is privilege in and of itself. So, um, it's the pieces that happen on a daily basis. It's the conversations. It's the relationships. It's the things that happen, um, you know, secondary to something that I might do. And one thing that popped into my mind that I that I think you can't discount is, you know, I live in like a 90% white community on Cape Cod. And so my neighborhood is 95% white people. And I'm making up that number, but it looks like that. Um, and the, the bus stop is right on the corner of my house. And we have um, the rainbow peace flag out and we have a Black Lives Matter flag out. And um, there's a you know parent that lives down the street who I'm friends with. And she was saying how she was at the bus stop and this dad was there with her and looked over at our house and saw the Black Lives Matter flag and said, hey, you know, what do you think about that flag over there? And she said, I think it's great. And his response was, well, you know, all lives matter. And it was a dialogue between the two of them. So I don't know her that well, but when she relayed the story to me, she told me the things that she said really to sort of challenge and, and um, you know, disrupt his way of thinking. And it's like, those are the things that like, if me having a Black Lives Matter flag on the corner where the bus stop is, causes two or three parents to engage in a dialogue and maybe open their mind a little bit more to think a different way. I don't think you can discount that. So like if I have one person that I've had a closed door conversation with that has somehow advanced some sort of justice work, whether it's with, you know, usually in, for me, I feel like it's with other white people because I, I, you know, I feel like that's a space where I have something to contribute in my community, which is 90% white people in my church, which is 99% white people, right? So most of the people that I interact with are white people. So there can certainly be criticism about centering white voices in this discussion. And that is exactly what I'm doing in this podcast. <laughs> I happen to think that it's important to do. But I'm just curious your thoughts about that whole idea of to you, what makes being with other white people and having these conversations feel necessary and important? So, you know, I, I'm on a citizens group in my town that is, it, it started up last spring with a goal of making the town more welcoming and affirming for everybody. Because, you know, I mentioned the town is, is, you know, very white. And we've had just in the last few months, you know, a couple of pretty significant 
acts of racism, vandalism, and harassment. And people criticize and, and don't want this group to move forward until there are people of color around the table. But we're a 90% white community. So if we are going to find a couple of people of color who want to engage in this, we are tokenizing those one or two people to speak on behalf of one or more of the identities they hold. And that's just not fair. But that shouldn't stop the white people in town from saying, you know what, we're fed up. We see the blatant racism. We see the ways that our town is not welcoming for everybody. So we want to do better. This is, I think, the work of allyship. Um, you know, one of the best books I've read over the last year is, is Bettina Love's We Want to Do More Than Survive. You know, she talks about the, the role of allies as co-conspirators. And I love that phrase so much more than the word ally. Because ally to me implies that, like, you know, like, I think of ally, right, as a gay woman. Like, when people talk about being an LGBTQ ally, like, what does that mean? Like, you're going to stand next to me and say I'm proud of you? Like, that's not what I need. You know, like, I need somebody to do the actual work to advance rights and equity for LGBTQ people. So, you know, a co-conspirator to me has an action to it. We have to be doing the work and not just doing the talk. That concludes my interview with Tracy. Thank you for listening. If you have additional time, I now invite you on a guided meditation with me to reflect on and process what you just heard. This meditation will focus on relationships, which is a large part of what Tracy was sharing with us. So if you would, please find a comfortable position, one that you can be in for about 10 minutes. Gently close your eyes or gaze down towards the floor. And doing a brief scan throughout your body, from your feet up to your head, just noticing if you're holding on to any tension. Or if you're fairly relaxed. With any areas of tension, just lightly note to yourself, there is tension here. Feel your body being supported by whatever you're sitting, standing, or laying on. And whenever you need to, come back to that feeling of your feet on the floor or your body on the surface that is supporting you. Become aware of your breathing. 
the natural rhythm of your breath. Just noting, breathing in, breathing out. In thinking about the interview you just heard, see if you can bring to mind anyone that perhaps you have harmed that's a person of color, either through your actions or your words. Just take a moment and see if you can recall a time And perhaps this is the first time you're aware of it because of the conversation you just heard. See what comes up if anything comes up. If you think of your, your heart area, your mind with a valve on it, just take that valve and slowly open it just a little bit more, really encouraging a sense of openness to seeing and feeling and understanding ways that we may be doing harm, even if that's not our intention. Welcoming memories in, being curious about them. So if you have a person or people in a situation in your mind's eye, I invite you to gently hold that almost like it's sitting in front of you, as if you were going to have a conversation with this person. Seeing them there in front of you, taking a few deep breaths, And noticing with your full attention, how do you feel right now? And name that. How do you feel as you recall and remember the situation? 
perhaps it ended up being a positive situation. And so you feel happiness. You feel good. Perhaps it did not end well. And you're still carrying that with you. Just noticing. Noticing if there's anywhere in your body that is holding this. If it's helpful, you might want to place your hand gently wherever there may be tension. Or over your heart to continue to encourage a sense of openness. Whatever you're feeling, welcome it as part of this relationship between you and this other person. And now I invite you to call to mind a person or persons in your life that support you. If they are people who are also interested in racial justice, see if you can think of who they are and bring them into the circle. People who generally provide you with the support you need. Or it can be someone just in general in your life who supports you, who loves you, and call them into this circle. Notice if that changes any of the feelings you have. Notice any changes that might occur in your body when bringing them in. in this circle of relationship with someone or people who you may have harmed and with people who generally support you in your work. 
sensing and feeling that you are all together in this, working for the greater good. And in our final minute, let's see if we can send compassion to ourselves and others. May we be happy. May we find peace. May we find resolution. May we be safe. Sending that intention out from within your own heart and from within this circle out into the world. Thank you for doing this meditation with me. I hope you found it helpful. I'd now like to share with you some of my own reflections after hearing back the conversation with Tracy and in doing that guided meditation. There is one specific example that comes to mind that where I am sure that I did what's called a microaggression. Um, which can seem like just such small things that we don't even realize we're doing, but can have a really big impact on the people who are hearing what we say. And that certainly is, in my view, what happened with Tracy and the student who she called her shadow. So in my case, I worked for an organization where you could apply to be a member. And so one evening I was on office duty and a black woman came to the window and asked about membership. And I will preface this by saying that this organization is at least 85% white in terms of its membership, likely more. And I was started filling out the application with her, and one of the questions was, what is your occupation? And she told me that she was a medical doctor. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but I'm sure that... I exhibited an element of surprise um, and probably said something like, oh, good for you. Oh, really? Oh, that's great. Um, something along those lines. And at the time, I didn't think anything of it, but, but there was always something in me that wondered, just didn't feel quite okay. We never saw her. I had never seen her after that interaction. She certainly didn't say anything to me 
as though she was offended or insulted by it, but sometimes that's not what happens. Um, sometimes people just go along their way. Sometimes they don't realize it. Sometimes they do. I mean, we just don't know. But I know from learning more about what microaggressions are and especially how prone we are as white people without even realizing and doing them. Um, and the other thing that is interesting about this is this organization that I worked for had very, very well-educated high socioeconomic status. So someone being a doctor or a professor or a lawyer um, or anybody in a very white collar profession was very normal. Um, so it was even more interesting to me that I expressed such surprise because it would be the norm um, to have a doctor join this organization. <sighs> so the meditation really asks us to, when we recall these times that we've been involved in harming somebody else, that we are drawing upon the people that support us and hold us through being able to manage what comes up and move beyond it, which is a lot of what Tracy and I were also discussing. And I was very fortunate to be a part of a couple of groups, white awake was the term used, white awake groups, where white people come together and share stories like this, um, similar to how we're doing with the podcast. And, you know, as I'm recalling now this story, I just kind of notice and during the meditation that some faces from these groups just surrounding me and being there in a very supportive way, just kind of saying, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but it's okay to go back and remember and feel a bit of pain and then just a little bit of compassion so that we can move forward and learn something, right? So that's my sharing with you. I hope you found that helpful. And of course, and as always, please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think who might feel interested. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, um, I welcome you to email me at mindfullywhite at gmail.com. We hope to have you with us in the next episode. Thank you. <laughs>